If you got a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 11. We're going to finish off Acts 11 tonight, beginning down in verse number 19. In just a few minutes, we'll read that text. Um, but I, I got to say, anybody that doubts that the Bible is relevant, uh, anybody that doubts that the Bible is relevant to our current generation has never read the book of Acts. Um, uh, the rest of the Bible, of course, relevant too. But if you doubt the Bible speaks to our generation, speaks to our church, um, not just our, not just the church in our age, but our church you know, in, in here at Risen, uh, if, if you doubt that, you've never read Acts um, and, or you've never studied Acts, specifically the portion of Acts that we've been camping out in for the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I tell you, Acts is food for a Christian soul. Um, it, it's a diet plan that every Christian needs to be on and commit to for at least, uh, at least once a year. You need to, whether read the whole book or not, study this book and hit the high spots of this book. And hopefully this study will help you do that in the future and give you a little bit of cliff notes for... Um, um, maybe what each chapter, each passage is trying to say to us. But our commitment to the church as members is further encouraged by Acts. So if you want to know, if you read Acts, it's impossible to read this book and, and not be met with this reminder that church is so important to who we are as Christians, that our our identity is is core to our part of the church, that you can't separate the two um, and we're encouraged to be committed to the church. And, and we're also reminded that the church is encouraged to be committed to the world as an omission in the world. Um, if you read Acts and you hear Acts for what it is, an account of the early church's formation, unification, and progression. It's what we see in Acts. We see them form, we see them unite, and we see them progress. They don't stand still. Uh, then as a Christian, you will know that you cannot, we cannot belong to the Lord without belonging to the church and you cannot be faithful to the Lord without being faithful to and as the church. And, and that might rub some people the wrong way. It doesn't rub people in church on a Wednesday night the wrong way. It, it, it affirms why you're here. But I'm, as a pastor, I will always be unapologetic about the reality that Christian, Christianity is attached to the church. That Christians are made for, born for, and to be placed in the church to serve the Lord and to be faithful. The church is God's chosen means to promote the gospel and to progress the kingdom and to, to, to tell the whole world about Jesus. It's the place that Christians are supposed to find home and to find family and to find fellowship and to find uh, nourishment and, and strength and growth. Uh, that's how God designed this. We need that family. Um, so all of this that we've covered is so important from what we believe, uh, how we believe and how we behave and to whom we bear witness and of whom we bear witness. So ultimately that's what Acts is all about. Now remember how Acts started back in Acts 1? I remind us this a lot because we can't get away from this. Back in Acts 1, Jesus says, hey guys, this is what I put you here for. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. So there in the, this is the thesis statement in the book of Acts, that the church has been placed to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, that's literally what happens in Acts. They're witnesses in their local territory, in their larger territory, and then they're witnesses to the ends of the earth beyond their territory. So, of course, we see that literally from Jerusalem to Judea to Rome, and we see that spiritually as they witness in their home, they witness across their boundaries, and then they, of course, witness beyond the horizon that they thought they would ever 
witness and they would ever see. So Jesus gathered together the church and he said, y'all are to believe in me, you're to follow me and bear witness of me. Now, this was not just some of them. Now, we wouldn't argue that, uh, that only some people are to believe. As Christians, we believe that everyone must believe, right? That's part of our confession. We, we define Christianity as believe, trust in Jesus. So we wouldn't say that's only to certain people, would we? Just the same, we don't say that following Jesus is only for certain Christians, that believing in Jesus is core to Christianity, following Jesus is core to Christianity. Likewise, bearing witness for Jesus is not just for some Christians. It's to all and for all. Christians. Acts makes that very clear. Acts makes it clear that this is on everyone's shoulders, not just some, but all members of the church are to be on mission for the church. Now, I think membership, the word membership, nothing wrong with the word, but I think the way we talk about it and the way we throw it around, I think it's less than stellar to really, uh, to really capture what it means to belong to the church because we think about church membership and we think about gym membership, right? You can join a gym, but you don't ever have to go. And as long as you keep giving them money, they'll put your name on the roster, right? What good does that do? We, we think about church membership as, as, hey, I'm a member of a club. I pay my dues. I show up every once in a while. I'm on the roster. But membership in the biblical sense, it's much more than that. And, and of course, you all know this, but I think the, ch- the church needs to be refreshed about what membership really means because if we're members, we're on mission. But I think somehow, someway, we've separated members from missionaries, haven't we? But back in 1 1 Corinthians 12, when we we were introduced to this word member, it's not given to us in a sterile kind of, you know, clerical way. It's given to us in a very very organic way. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ in his church. Now, Paul's literally talking about a literal body here. He goes on to talk about the hand and the feet, the foot and the head and then, you know, all the different members of the body as vital to the whole being. So this is where we get church membership from. We get that we use this 1 Corinthians 12. We pulled this word and we put that in our vernacular as church members, as church, as people in the church. We use membership because Paul used it here. But again, Paul's not using it in a clinical kind of, well, you're a member of a club. He's using it in a organic, you're a member of a body as in you're part of the body makes it a little more personal, doesn't it? It makes it a little more serious, doesn't it? Not about having a name on a list, or, but having a role to play, having a part to play. This, this false narrative has been drummed up for so long, and that's why when people talk about church membership in this serious way, people kind of look at it like people look at you like you're radical. Uh, another, another verse that really kind of helps flesh out what it means to be a church member uh, is Philippians 1. I encourage you to remember this one if you can. Paul says, I'm writing to you Philippians because of your partnership in the gospel. So that word partnership, same idea, same idea as membership, but that's a better word, I think, isn't it? Partnership means we're in this together. We're working together. We're participating together. We're participants. We are, as Acts Acts 2 tells us, part of a fellowship of believers who belong as both members and missionaries. This isn't new, (laughs) Remember when Jesus called his first disciples? What did he say to them? These these brand new people that only followed him because he fed them a bunch of fish. 
right? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Why'd they follow him? Because he did a miracle and he filled their boats up with fish and they were like, wow, we wanna be with you because we want more of that stuff. And then Jesus gives them this, this, this way over their head invitation that they didn't pay attention to because they didn't realize it until much later what they were actually signing up for. But what did Jesus tell them when they first followed him? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He uses that fisherman analogy to say, hey, as we've caught some fish today, y'all are gonna help me catch, not in a, not in a in personal way, as we'll see, y'all are gonna help me catch people or bring people in. He uses this fishing analogy to say, hey, this is what we're gonna do through the church. So now this may sound a little robotic, may sound a little procedural, but we know that Jesus' ministry was anything but those things. He was deeply personal in all of his interactions and initiatives. And we must be the same. He wasn't just trying to get people on a roster, get people on a list. He wasn't just trying to get people in a boat or in a building. Jesus was trying to form a relationship with people, wasn't he? Because what did he anchor their fishing for men? What did he anchor that in? What did he say was the, at the core of their mission? And how would they win people? How would they reach people? John 13 tells us, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if they know you're mine by love, they will become mine through your love, my love through you, my love that wins them like it won you. So don't you see how these things come together? We're called to be on mission, but we're called to do so in love out of a place of genuine passion and dedication to the mission. It's important that we understand all these parts and pieces because it's easy to study Acts and turn everything into a formula. It's easy to, look, to look at Acts and say, let's shrink this down into copy and paste mechanics. But Acts is an account of genuine people who have been saved by Jesus changed by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, and the spirit that lit the flame for the church kept that flame burning. God used real people to reach other real people. And, and notice, and, and we've learned, they didn't always get it right, did they? And he didn't always use people that were squeaky clean, did he? Saul of Tarsus, a murderer, a anti-Christian bounty hunter, who God saves and transforms and uses to build relationships and win people through the same love that he won him with. Now we have Peter in the last couple of chapters who's a leader in the church, but has an undeniable prejudice against Gentiles. And God has to shake him to show him how this would not be tolerated. Peter wasn't doing it maliciously, but he realizes it was a sin and it was gonna hold the church back. God refines Peter with a spirit of compassion, which quells the prejudice and the arrogance and the indifference and spurs him to be bold before his dissenters and his opponents. Now, remember when Peter stood in front of the Jewish authorities, he was bold and said, I'm going to keep preaching in Jesus' name. And then in Acts 11, he stands in front of the church authorities and says, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to keep preaching in Jesus' name to the very people that y'all don't like that I didn't always like, but I've made that right. Don't you see how this, is a trans, how this continues to build on what, we've, what, what is the core to the, to the church's mission? Peter says, we're, they, told the church, they told Peter, we're not going to the Gentiles, but Peter was bold and said, yes, we are, and yes, we will. We will preach in Jesus' name to everyone. 
His rationale was rooted in this call over them, this commission over them, their identity as church members, as we are members of the body of Christ, as the body of Christ desires to include people from all tribes and all tongues, we must go, we must remain on mission, and we do so by love for them. Peter said, we cannot stand in God's way. And I got to tell you, that was a watershed moment for the church. I've been talking about how this couple chapter arc in Acts is a watershed time in history. Because if Peter doesn't say in Acts, in Acts 11, uh, 17 and 18, if Peter doesn't say God can save them like he saved us, therefore I'm not going to stand in God's way. Who am I to stand in God's way? When Peter says that and they fall silent and then they glorify God, this is the moment the church pivoted. We're not just a local church, we're a global church. We're not just a Jewish church, we're not just a religious people. For certain people, we are a global church on mission for all all people, we will reach every tribe, every tongue, as Jesus told us to. They had no intentions to do so before Peter says in Acts eleven seventeen, who am I to stand in God's way? We are standing here at the precipice of the promised land and we're standing in the doorway. We're standing in God's way. Who are we to think we can decide who and who who God will go to and who God won't go to, who God does love and who God doesn't love. Shame on us. And Peter says, I'm getting out of the way and I'm going to walk in the way of God. Now, what they respond with is so powerful. With Peter's proclamation, the church doesn't just pretend to care. It decides to act and show that it cares immediately. There's not several chapters of praying about it. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about stuff, but remember back in Joshua chapter 6 when the people had sinned against God and Joshua decides he's going to pray about it and God says, no, 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 Joshua, it's not time to pray, it's time to do. You know what you should have done, you didn't do it and you let this get out of hand. Now it's time to act. And in Acts 11, there's no praying about it, it's time to do something about it. They've been standing in God's way for a couple chapters now and God's been building up something big. Peter says, we're not going to be in the way anymore. And immediately they are going to move. Now in today's society, there's a term that gets thrown around a lot. You've probably heard this on the news. We use this to, to kind of ridicule people. There's a term called virtue signaling, virtue signaling. And, and in, in society, this means that you get outraged about something or you get passionate about something, but you only do so because you know people are watching you and you feel like you've got to have a certain response. Politicians have invented this, by the way, if you've heard this word, it's been on political news. Oh, I got to make a big deal about this. I, could, I couldn't care less about that cause, but I'm going to pretend to just while somebody's watching me. And when somebody's not watching me, I'm probably going to be a hypocrite. That's what this is about. Virtue signaling is, is all about, hey, I'm outraged about something uh, just because somebody's looking at me. I got to pretend like I care, show that I care. I got to pretend to be angry, sad, enthused, but I don't actually care. And our society is drunk on the energy that comes with playing the part when people are looking, but not actually doing the part when people are needing. You hear that? Now, this isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't just something that the media and the politicians invented. This has been in religion forever. 
This is like the last night of revival when everybody comes down and everybody says, I'll never do it again or I'll always do this from now on. I'm always gonna, I'm gonna from now on. This is the last night of church camp when everybody, you know, lights the candle or everybody throws a stick in the fire or everybody gets on their knees. And I'm not ridiculing this. I'm just saying we do this, don't we? We all say from now on, I'll never again or I always will. That special church service where we say we're gonna do it, but we don't do anything after that. And I can say that because I've been there with y'all, so I'm not beating up anybody, but isn't this true? That every one of us have had this last night of church camp and revival syndrome. We say it, but we don't do it. And I'm not saying in the moment we didn't really feel it and we didn't really mean it. I'm just saying from the altar to the door, something was lost. Our proclamation was forgotten. Our passion was left behind. What we can learn from the last chapter of Acts 11, last part of Acts 11, is that the original church wasn't a talking church. It wasn't a virtue signaling church. It was a doing church. It was an action church, hence the name Acts. Because in the immediate aftermath of Peter's convincing speech, look what happens. Acts 11, 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, this is what was going on for the last couple of chapters. But while this is going on, they begin to receive letters and receive word that Peter just made a very bold proclamation. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, which is a Greek people. Uh, people from all over the Greek uh, empire, Greek mainland, preaching the Lord Jesus. And now they heard that Peter made this proclamation. They thought, well, I guess, I guess we're gonna, we can talk to people that aren't Jews. Wow, we can share the gospel with people that aren't Jews. Don't know how that's going to work, but we'll try. And what happens in verse 21? The hand of the Lord was with them. Now, we, we talk about God's hand being on stuff a lot, don't we? That's a kind of a church phrase. We don't read that a lot in Scripture. This is one of the few times we ever read that God's hand was on anybody. So don't, if we use that phrase a lot, let's make sure that we know what it's tied to. Because we can have the same hand on us if we'll do what they did. The hand of the Lord was with them. The great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So here's that old kind of church mentality that, remember, we read this about back in Acts 8. Oh, we got to send somebody out because we don't trust them. We don't know if this is going, on, if this is going as it should be. We got to send somebody to make sure that the wrong people haven't got in the building. The wrong crowd hasn't showed up. This was kind of the, the robotic movement the church moved in back in, in the old days. But remember what just happened in Jerusalem. Peter just said, hey, we're not standing in the way, guys. And they send Barnabas out the door. And Peter looks at Barnabas and he says, you remember what I just said. Verse 23. When he came and, he seen the gra- when he came and had seen the grace of God. Because what did they conclude back in the first, a few chapter verses ago? The grace that saved us can save them. Yeah, they don't know what we know. They don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't walk like us, don't sing like us, don't act like us. There's a lot of things that might be up in the air, but God's grace is able, isn't it? 
So when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them with that, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue or cling to the Lord. Cling as in trust in the Lord. For he was a good man, Barnabas, this is. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So you see God's building something here at Antioch, isn't he? Remember that guy Saul that showed up and got saved and we ran him out of town because we didn't like him because he was too freshly murdering people? So hey, let's go. Barnabas says, this is where Saul needs to be fostered because I know God's got a purpose for Saul and this is gonna be the beginning of that. We'll get to that later. Verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that, he was with that for a whole, excuse me. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, not where they were all Jewish and knew the Old Testament front to back and could sing all the Psalms. And quote all the Proverbs. But in this church full of Gentiles. Where the grace of God was at work. That's where they got the name Christian. Pretty big deal, isn't it? Now, God's spirit was moving. Now, let's go back to the meeting when Peter says, hey, we're not going to stand in God's way. God's spirit was moving. And God said, y'all don't want to stand in my way? You want to walk in obedience to my way? Here I am, ready to move, inspire and empower. Who is ready to go? Remember, they didn't just wait around when Peter said this. They immediately started going. Church, how many of us love to talk about what needs to get done but never get anything done? That's the religious thing to do, isn't it? Feel bad about it, but don't do nothing about it. God is the same God as he was in Acts. And when Peter said, let's go, what did they do? They went. I mean, God's the same God that he was back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, I guess I will. Now, he was a little more enthused than that, wasn't he? Here I am, send me. So here we are. We hear that people say, okay, we're supposed to love and reach and engage people all around the world, even the Gentiles, especially the Gentiles. Let's go. So they go, and initially they were shy about it. They didn't know if it was the right thing to do. They were uncomfortable, but Peter said, don't stand in God's way. They can have grace just like we got grace. And all of the sudden, a church is born. Now the home base is tested. They send Barnabas to see what's going on because they don't know how to sanction. They've never had, they've never had a secondary base. They've never had a, 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 an off-site. And as, as these people are getting saved and they're all gathering one in place, what do you do with this? So they send Barnabas. And he says in verse 23, he saw the grace of God. He sees the grace of God is on display and at work. This is the mark of a church with God's hand on it. Isn't it? Back in verse 21, God's hand was on it. God's hand was on them. And then in verse 23, he saw the grace of God. So what does it mean to have God's hand on us as a church? The grace of God is preached and people are trusting in it and their lives are being changed by it. 
and we're giving God's grace room to work. That's hard to do sometimes. The mark of a church where grace is the lifeblood. Before grace can have an impact, it's got to have the floor. It's not grace plus law plus legalism plus tradition. It's grace and grace alone. God cannot and will not bless a church that believes that it's justified by anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ. Not religion, not culture, not tradition, not politics. Do you know how brave, how much boldness it took? Rather, you know how much courage it took to take the gospel to people that had never heard of Moses? Had never heard of David and had never read the Old Testament? What are we supposed to do? Just walk up and start talking about Jesus? Yeah. God had a son. He sent him to earth. He lived a, lived a perfect life, died a death for all sinners. He rose back to life. You want to believe it? I, the spirit of his resurrection lives in me. As he has changed my life, he can change yours. If you just trust in that promise, he will do it to you. And one by one by one, this wave swept across the mainland of Greece and eventually Rome because they trusted in the gospel's power. Grace says, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling for forgiveness and justification. Grace says, this is how you are saved because Jesus died for your sins. Not what you do, not what you got to work off, not what you bring. Grace is enough. Sometimes the church adds to that, don't we? Grace says, nothing can raise me up, change my way, better my life, except the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We can be sanctified and progress only through Jesus. So church, this is how God has given free reign and to, to save and transform his lives. When, when and where his grace is preached, promoted, possessed, and passed along, that's what created this second church. Where grace is put on top, there's no concern of sin slipping in because grace isolates sin and treats sin. Where God's grace is put first, there's no risk of arrogance or pride because God's grace exposes it and humbles it. Where grace is put at the top and preached made the basis for who we are and how we grow. There's no way to fail to share it because we realize that without grace, we'd be lost, so we gotta share it. You, you see, in this moment, the church moved from its home to its first extended base of operations. This was the first official church plant. Hundreds of miles away from home. And it was kind of an accident. They didn't say, let's go to Antioch and plant a church. It was kind of like, well, they went there, got word that people were preaching to Gentiles. Let's try it here. And God builds this church. Now, there was a reason why God picked Antioch. It was the capital of Syria. It was the entrance to the, uh, to the Greek and Roman mainland. It was going to be a city that the rest of the world could get the gospel from. God picked Antioch for the same reason he picked Jerusalem originally. Take that analogy even further. In this moment, the church hit a defining home run because grace became its defining attribute. 
as it moved from home base to this new base of operation, this was truly a home run moment because this would define the church's mode of operations going forward. They would not only go to Jews, not only go to people that were like them or believed like them or looked like them or knew what they knew, they wouldn't just go to people that had, that, that had a certain set of beliefs or a certain you know, qualifications. There would be no particular prerequisite of religion, race, or merit. The only prerequisite was that they were looking for sinners in need of grace. Isn't that something? They didn't judge people as not being able to receive it, not being capable of getting it. They were looking for people that were looking for help. Jesus can handle the rest. This takes faith. It takes courage and confidence. This requires that we have confidence in our, not in our strategy or ability to control, but that we leave it into the hands of Jesus. You see, this all comes full circle because what was the original call for the church? Bear witness to Jesus. Not culture, not traditions, not denominations, but to the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Listen, I am passionate about my traditions and my denominations and my theology, and I love what I believe and how I think it should be done, but none of that can save anybody. And that gets in the way of the one man that can save everybody. When we know our life comes from Jesus and only Jesus, we cling to him as Barnabas encourages us to do in Acts chapter, in, in verse 23. He says, the grace that you've received, would you cling to God as a result? So the grace of God enabled them, enabled them, enabled their faith and equipped them to be, equipped them with faithfulness to God. So the grace did not just give them a pass for their sin, but it changed them. Grace changed his people. Something about grace, grace has such an impact on us. Religion does not change people. Law does not change people. You can scare people into doing what you want them to do for a little while, but they'll fall away eventually. Grace leaves an indelible impact on people. Grace has an impact. It ruins us for less. It wires our hearts to know that there is only life in Jesus. It compels us to cling to Jesus, trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus Grace drives us to follow Jesus. Somebody that's truly saved will be found following Jesus. If someone claims to be saved and has no ambition or conviction to follow Jesus, they've never been impacted by grace because grace leaves us different. This is made very clear in the Bible here in Acts. This is what defined Antioch. It's what defined the church as it stepped onto the world stage so far removed from its context of Judaism. But you know what else this proves? The gospel could stand on its own nail-scarred feet. The gospel could stand on the rock that was rolled away from Jesus' grave. The gospel could stand on Jesus and his grace. And when it does, it changes the world. Now, I'm not undermining what happened in Acts 1 through 10 out of Israel but what I'm trying to say is that I think Luke wants us to take note of this. That this church plant at Antioch is the defining moment for the church in terms of it becoming its own institution. Stepping out of the shadow of Judaism, breaking off the branch and sprouting into its own organism. Verse 26 is another one of those verses that should be bold and triple-sized font. The church arrived on a global stage, no longer a spinoff of, Jew, of a Jewish movement called The Way. Here it takes on a new name, no longer tied to a nation, but to a Savior. 
who came for all nations. Don't you see what happened here? In this moment, from this church, Christianity is born. Before this, it's called the way. But Acts eleven twenty six says that Antioch gave it its name. In the next few verses, we're given a bit of information about what defined the church, what defined Christianity. In verse 27 through 30, it says that immediately they begin to organize around more missions. Not just to spread the gospel, but to do good works, to do good things. Verse 29 says they, each according to their own ability, determined to send relief to the brethren. So all of a sudden, the church plant is helping the, the home base because of the famine that came their way. So Antioch was an active church from its inception. It never sat still. It was, as we'll read in a few chapters, it becomes the hub of the church's global mission, more so than Jerusalem even. Christianity finds its true DNA in the Antioch model. If you want to know what defines Christianity, we do an autopsy of Antioch because verse 26 says it's at Antioch that they were first called Christians. Here's three things that we know from Antioch. They were empowered by grace. They were equipped with faith. They were inspired to love. That's what defined Christianity in its earliest form. You dig through the ruins and you scrape away the dust. This is what you find on the inscription of Antioch's tomb. The church that gave us our name. Empowered by grace. Equipped with faith. Inspired to love. Grace from God. Faith in God. Love like God. Church, does that define us? Is there something in you that wants to add something else to that list? Because there's, in me, there's some things I want to add on there. And God says, no, 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 that's what gets in the way. If it did define us, we'd be hitting home runs with our lives like Antioch did. I think, I believe so. Antioch was not defined by the clothes they wore, the buildings they met in, the songs they sing, the jobs they had, the houses they built. They were defined by grace, faith, and love. That's what Christianity is all about. Somehow, somewhere along the way, we've walked away from this a little bit, haven't we? Here's what I want to interject in our closing. Here in 2021, we're at a crossroads. When it comes to our identity, when it comes to understanding who we are, sometimes I think that people think the church is earmarked by, you know, how we compare to other people or how outraged we get at some things. But what happened to our humility that depends on grace? What happened to our being more focused on what God wants to do through us than what he hasn't done in somebody else? What happened to loving our neighbors and our communities not so we could get recognized? You know how so many people, so many people love people until, they're, until they don't get any recognition for it and they quit. Where do you read at in Acts that they love people because they wanted attention? No, they love people because that's what they were called to do. They were called to bear witness even if it, if it was successful or not. The future of the church depends on us getting back to this. I, I said last week and I'll say it again. The church isn't doomed or dead. It's a, in a lot of ways, it, it, it's just forgotten who it is. We've forgotten whose we are. We could talk all day about what's wrong with our world, not, but that's not our place there was a lot wrong with this world because don't you know this world was ran by the government that killed Jesus? Does it get much worse than that? 
listen, I don't like things, and I don't like the way things are in our world right now. I don't agree with things in our world right now. I'm not happy with the way things are done in every corner of the world. But the government that ruled this world crucified God. And it's in that world that Christianity was born, was built, and thrived. So don't tell me it can't, get, can't happen again. I know perilous times, but that doesn't mean lack of power from God. It never has meant that. May we learn from Antioch how they refused to let fear walk them back and press beyond their fears by faith. Antioch becomes a church founded on these principles of always reaching beyond their limits, what they thought were their limits. Knowing that Christ had purchased the world, the church simply needed to spread the news. What if we simply believed that Jesus was enough and that by his grace, everyone could be changed and by faith in him, everyone could live differently and by love from him through us, the whole world could know. In some ways, we've made it more complicated and we don't know if this stuff can work. Antioch operated with a datitude, an attitude of always launching and never landing. Antioch always remain at this place of we got to just live like we just got saved which means I'm relying on God's grace the same grace that saved us can save them they never got so religious that they forgot what saved them couldn't we use a little bit of that they were always from this wow we just got saved grace saved us grace can save them they clung to faith as if they had just met Jesus and needed to know more. How many times do we turn away from the Bible because we've already read it? We know what it says. We don't need to be refreshed. They clung to Jesus like they had just met him every single day. They were always launching, never landing. They kept loving others because they knew that only love saved them. They never got bitter, never got burnt out. Kept loving. This is what built a community that strengthened believers and welcomed unbelievers. This is what defined Christianity. We don't have to rediscover what the church is or redefine what Christianity is. If we stuck to what worked 2,000 years ago, we would have the same kind of success. Not physical success. But I'm talking spiritual success, which would bring in people, of course. I believe that, and I hope you do. I really believe that you do as well. We just had to dig past some of the stuff we built on top. Grace, faith, and love. They defined Christianity once and they helped lead to a global impact. Don't you think and don't you believe they can do the same thing again? But I'm not worried about the world as much as I'm worried about our world, our backyard, our town, our communities, our workplaces, our homes, everything in between. Get back to what saved us, grace, Get back to what changed you, faith in Jesus. Get back to what drives us, love for people. And if we stay there, we will always be launching and never landing. That's what made a difference in Antioch. And if you read the rest of the book, that's what makes a difference in the rest of the world. God's word is good. His plan is perfect. Let's make sure that we make his plan our plan. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
it's awesome to be able to read the story of where we got our name. I love the story where Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I love the story where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I, I, I want to love this story just as much, God, where they were first called Christians because they were like Christ. Changed by the grace of God, driven by faith in God, moved by love for others as God had loved them. God, would you help us as a church to be defined by this would you help us to, to go to our world and know that as grace has saved us, it can save them. As faith has changed us, it can change them. And as love has impacted us, it can impact them. And help us not to get away from these simple, simple, powerful catalysts that can make a difference. God, I love you. Thank you for Risen Church. Thank you for the grace that's on display here. Would your hand be on us as it was on Antioch? Would we be like the people in Jerusalem when Peter said, I'm not gonna stand in, my way, stand in God's way. Would you raise up people here tonight that are gonna walk out the door and they're not just gonna forget about it tomorrow, but they're gonna go to work. They're gonna go to their communities. They're gonna go to wherever they go tomorrow and they're gonna let the grace of God change them and drive them and faith in God purpose them and the love of God work through them. Would you lay your hand on somebody tonight that they might would make a difference tomorrow they did not expect to make and maybe they didn't plan on making but you plan on it. Lord, help it not to be left behind from the altar to the door, but help it to go with us and change us. We love you. We're thankful for you. And may you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.